Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. told her that, you know, that I was a child of God and I didn't fear her. I was trying to talk to her about being saved and her face had changed. It was evil. So I told her to get away from me. The further distance was between us, the better. And then every time she would look at me in my eyes, you know, like I got this evil presence over me and I was really starting to get scared. Like I felt like she was there to kill me. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. While we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. Good morning. Detective Dan. Always a pleasure. And one of our favorite guests returning, Detective George, who since season two has been promoted to sergeant. Congratulations, George. Thank you. Fantastic and well-deserved. Thanks. So, George, you are bringing us a really interesting case that Dan and Dave also were a huge part of. Tell us about that. This happened back in the fall a few years ago. We're home on a day off. Captain calls us up and says, patrol just responded to a local hotel. The guest was supposed to have checked out on the day this happened. And when housekeeping goes in the room, they find a woman deceased on the floor. On most deceased subject calls in our department, detectives will get a call from patrol, asked to come in and take a look around, see if there's any signs of foul play, any kind of wrongdoing. Not all calls are like that. Sometimes it's, you know, an elderly person has fallen and it's natural causes. It's pretty obvious. In this case, they didn't see signs of foul play. There wasn't apparent blood anywhere. There wasn't weapons. Not necessarily a sign of a struggle, aside from just being a messy hotel room. So I think... When Detective Dan and I first got called, we thought this may be just dot some I's, cross some T's, make sure everything's okay. And I can't speak for Dan, but I didn't think this was going to be a homicide. Was this woman young, old? 
She was in her early 50s, so I wouldn't say old by any means. So there wasn't anything obvious to indicate foul play, but was there something about the state of the hotel room that would paint a picture of what happened? There was no blood, no weapons. And in fact, when we looked around the room, we found a marijuana pipe, a couple of empty baggies of methamphetamine with the residue left in them. Typical things in hotel room, people are coming and going, partying, up to no good. So I thought maybe something like that could contribute to what happened. Was she on the bed? She was on the floor right near the door, face down, and the phone was next to her. That's the only thing that really struck me as odd. A lot of times we go into these hotel rooms where people are maintaining a residence there. They're not staying just overnight. That's their residence, and they're quite messy. So that didn't really strike me as odd, but her position on the floor was odd. If somebody ODs, a lot of times in hotel rooms, we'll find them on the bed. This was a little different, but still, there were no red flags saying to me that she'd been murdered or the victim of foul play. Got it. So why are you not surprised to find drug paraphernalia in this room? Well, a lot of the folks that we have occasion to run into working, drugs are a part of their lives and drugs take over their lives. So the other aspects of their lives, paying bills and paying rent, take a back seat. And they really run on a cash-only basis. They don't have a bank account that they can really fall back on. So they pay weekly rates at these seedier hotels and get a break on the rent. So we did some check-in and found out that uh, the victim had actually been staying in that hotel for 22 days at that point and did a couple question and answer sessions with the front desk and then neighboring rooms to see what they knew. And the front desk indicated that uh, she did have a car registered to her at the hotel room. It should have been parked out front of the room in the parking lot, and the car was not there. Oh. We call that a clue. <laughs> little by little, we started learning that numerous visitors had come and gone from the room and that there was a male guest that was regularly at the room with her. When we were checking through the room, the only real item we found indicated a male bend there was we found a sweatshirt initially. We later found a suitcase with some items in it that some belonged to a male, but there was a large sweatshirt that didn't obviously belong to the victim. So we started asking neighboring rooms if they saw or heard anything in particular. One room directly below the victim's room reported hearing loud yelling and banging, stomping noises coming from the room earlier that morning, probably at about 7.30 that morning. And that was concerning. They described it like a zoo up there. And they heard a male yelling. And it sounded like kids running around at first, but then it was louder stomping happening. Yikes. And what's the name of the victim? Her name is Brenda. Was Brenda in from out of town? Yes. We have a pulp mill in town, a very large pulp mill where they make paper. And the furnace, I believe, needed to be cleaned out. So they hired a crew from out of state who traveled here. And I guess that's what they specialized in is they go to these large pulp mills across the country and they get work for a month where it takes quite a bit of time to clean these massive furnaces. So that's what they were in town doing. Who's they? Uh, Brenda, the male, and about 20 other people. Wow. Yeah. Also in the room, I guess to even add on to what I said, we found a couple of cell phones. One of the cell phones had a... Uh, Obviously, a call history. I hadn't got to checking that yet, but an incoming text message came in after we arrived from somebody asking, hey, what's going on? Haven't heard from you. What's up? <laughs> so I reached out to the person that sent that text message. The woman I spoke with said she was expecting Brenda and Tim to travel cross-country back to where they're originally from, and she hasn't heard from them. 
So she said, you know, Brenda and Tim are supposed to be here. Do you have any idea where they're at? And I said, I really don't know a whole lot right now. I can't answer too many questions. But she said, well, they're part of a large work group that came out to work at this paper mill. And I know they're staying at several hotels around town. And she gave me some ideas of what hotels the other folks may be staying at. So I think initially Dan and I traveled to those hotels to try to talk to all the other coworkers to try to get some more clues as to what may have happened to Brenda. You said the woman on the phone asked about Brenda and a guy named Tim. Who's Tim? We didn't know it at the time, but Tim turns out to be Brenda's boyfriend. Oh. And at this point, are your suspicions now leaning toward foul play, or are you still in the camp of, "Mm, this is maybe an overdose? We were definitely leaning towards foul play at that point, only because there was a person missing from the room and the car was missing. Right. I mean, initially just walking in, not much, but there's a car missing and then a boyfriend missing too. That was enough to start asking more questions. For one, just in case he's a possible victim of foul play also. Uh, In case there was some kind of drug deal gone bad, he gets kidnapped, the car's taken, he goes out, they beat him and leave him for dead somewhere. We had a responsibility to investigate that angle as well. So we got this call on a Sunday. The medical examiner responded to our location, picked up the body, took her to the morgue. We have to wait until Monday to actually do the autopsy with the doctor. So we don't know a cause of death yet, but we're going to handle this as a homicide investigation and not assume that it's benign. I would have thought the coroner's lab was open seven days a week. Not in our small jurisdiction. In larger jurisdictions, say New York or Los Angeles, it's like a 7-Eleven. It's 24-7. There are occasions if we have a pressing case where we need a homicide done right now, we can call in our medical examiner and he will perform the autopsy on call. That season one case, Get Out, that autopsy was performed as an emergency autopsy. Oh, wow. Had you made an eyeball determination as to how she died at that point? I remember when the medical examiner was in the room and we had finally turned her over. You still could not see any injuries to her. And it was because of the position of her body and rigor had set in. We deal with lividity, how the blood settles in the body. And that can sometimes camouflage bruises that would be readily apparent if the person's blood was pumping and they had all their color. Now you've got blood pooling into areas that a bruise might be, and that kind of covers it up. I did not know that. How does rigor break down? Soft tissues contract, so when you break rigor, you're basically releasing those muscles, tendons, ligaments, and allowing the body to assume its kind of relaxed position. That rigor eventually breaks itself, but if you're in the middle of it, dealing with it, you can either wait or you can break the rigor yourself. And that's an indicator of how long someone may have been there, too. If they're in rigor, they've been there less than a day, likely. But people come out of rigor again, too, once they've been in it. So that's also an indicator for the medical examiner to determine. About how long does it take to come out of rigor naturally? I don't think it's an exact science. It's not an exact science. But since she was in rigor, you can safely assume that she had died within, what, the last 12 hours? It's safe to assume that, approximately. Okay. And that's stuff we would corroborate later when we started talking to more and more people to try to figure out last time she was seen. All right, so you two start visiting these other hotels where Brenda and Tim's co-workers are staying. What do you find out? One of the people we ended up talking to was a guy named James, and James is Brenda's nephew, and he's also on this work crew. And you have to understand that there was a core group of this crew that really liked to party. They liked going out to bars. They dabbled in illicit drugs, meth, and whatnot. But they were heavy drinkers, and at night, they would let loose. In my conversation with James, 
He said that the night before, James had gone over to Tim and Brenda's hotel room and had been hanging out there. And apparently Brenda, she was very uh, honest with people. She would tell you exactly how she felt. Strong-willed woman. This boyfriend, Tim was quite a bit younger than her, but they were still a couple. And Tim was quite possessive of her. Jealous, thought he was losing her and was acting a bit desperate in James' estimation. And James actually pulled him aside and said, you need to chill out, man. You need to chill out. You're going to scare her away by being possessive. She's an independent woman. I think she'd been in the military. Prior military, yep. Oh. So she was a strong woman, but she had this boyfriend. And I think James could tell that their relationship was on the rocks. And James ended up leaving that night. So James leaves in the very early morning hours on the same day that Brenda is later discovered dead. Yes. So we're still on Sunday here, and we've been working at it all day. I think it was early afternoon when she was discovered, and we're into probably 10 or 11 o'clock at night now trying to track these people down and figure out where has Tim gone. What is James's response when you tell him why you're there? Do you say it's because Brenda was found dead? He wanted to know how she had passed away, and we didn't know. At that point, all we knew was that she had passed away, and we're not going to tell James that Tim is now missing, and we suspect that he's done something. But he's not stupid either. He's got quite a bit of street smarts. Wheels are turning in his head, thinking, who could have done this? Why are the cops asking me questions? And he went zero to 100 real quick. Like anger, grief? Grief, anger, really emotional. And I think some of that had to do with his drug use, is he wasn't able to manage those emotions. And he was very angry. He would cry. He would yell. But... He was very cooperative, too. So basically, we left it off with him as, if you talk to Tim, you need to let us know, and we're going to find out more tomorrow at the autopsy. So... James doesn't really feel like a suspect to you guys because he's visibly upset when you tell him that Brenda is dead and he's offering to help, right? So now what? We start talking to more and more people. Found other people who James referred us to saying, hey, this person was at the hotel that night too. And they tell us Brenda left with some more people to go out and party that night. And I think Tim may have stayed behind at the hotel. So we tracked down some of those people and they were able to tell us, yeah, After this argument, this thing happened at the hotel where Tim was getting really possessive and Brenda got uncomfortable. She left and those folks went out to a couple bars. I think they went out to get something to eat at a convenience store. They went to a strip club, went shopping. Shopping? That late at night? Where? They went to Walmart or in the area that night. As you do. Walmart's 24 hours. (laughs) They have everything. Walmart's a recurring character on this podcast. I can only imagine. So they made their way around town, and they gave us a lot of details about approximate time frames, where they're at, places like that. So then it became time to track these people down and corroborate their stories. And some of that involved finding video surveillance footage. A lot of times in cases like this, we got to prepare for a year, two years down the road when there's going to be a trial. And while we want to believe people are truthful with us, we need to corroborate that a little bit sometimes. So if we can prove someone's truthfulness by finding video footage of them at a store or a restaurant or a strip club or wherever. It shows that they're being as honest as possible and it gives a defense attorney less room to accuse them of making something up or lying about something. So that all got corroborated. It did? did? Yeah. Walmart has a very 
extensive security system, and they have cameras everywhere. Okay, so these people are in fact saying that Brenda was with them the night before. Did they say anything about how or when she left them? The last person that may have seen Brenda alive was with her at another hotel in town at about three in the morning, and then that person left and said Brenda had gone up to another hotel room to visit with more people. And that's the last account you have of Brenda's movements that night? Correct. Meanwhile, what do you find out at the autopsy the next day? Well, all of us have investigated different forms of assault and strangulation before, so we've learned to look for things like petechiae uh, in the eyes, which is the blood vessels bursting in the eye. That's an indicator that there's been a sudden cessation of oxygen to the brain. Someone would manually strangle somebody or somehow put them in a position to where blood's not going to the brain and then forces the blood vessels to burst inside the eyes and you see those bloodshot eyes. But it's just a more exacerbated version of bloodshot eyes. Did she have that? She had a little bit of that. But when the doctor that did the autopsy was able to go into the thyroid region of the neck, there's a bone there called the hyoid bone. And essentially, it's a horseshoe-shaped bone that kind of protects cartilage and your trachea. And when that is broken or fractured, that is a pretty good indicator that there's been manual strangulation. Somebody's broken that by force. Typically, that just doesn't crack and break. That's not an injury that happens. It's not indicative of any kind of osteoporosis or anything weird like that. So the doctor found the broken hyoid bone in her throat which sealed the deal that this is definitely a homicide and somebody forcefully strangled this woman to death. And we were also able to see once the doctor had cut open her throat, you start seeing the bruising on the tissue underneath. You do. Yeah, you do see the bruising there. So outwardly over the skin, it's disguised because of this lividity and the settling. Once you get into that tissue, you're able to see the bruising. And speaking of the bruising, I think Detective Dave mentioned earlier the positioning of the body, how the lividity, all the blood settles. I mean, gravity brings all the blood to one position. To the lowest point of the body, right? Correct. So when she's face down, all that blood from inside the body is positioned towards her upper torso. During the autopsy, they're allowed to go back in, and once they reposition her and they start checking and the blood resettles, they're able to see there's bruising and abrasions around her face and chest area. What I also noticed in this autopsy is she had bruising on the sides of her head. So once you peel the scalp back and you're able to see the muscles that are attached to the side of her head, she had bruising there as well. Oh. Now, this is just a quick side note. Y'all are fine in an autopsy? None of you get queasy? Just the sounds. That's the only thing that weirds me out. The smells. Well, that too, yeah. I will say autopsies on children, those bother everybody that I know. Of course. Understandable. I think we all treat it as a learning experience now. It's really interesting to go into something like this and try to figure out what's going on and to watch the doctor. And we're really lucky to have a pathologist in our jurisdiction that really involves us in the process to the point of asking questions, pointing things out, not just doing it on his own and telling us later. As things are happening, he's telling us, this is what I'm concluding based on what I'm seeing. We learn a lot from it. It's like an anatomy class and then some. It must give you real veracity when you're on the stand because you were there and it was explained to you in the moment. And I think that must, as a learning process, give you a greater understanding of what you're looking at. And I think that's why it's so important that we go to the autopsy. I remember this particular autopsy when the medical examiner found the fractured hyoid bone. He said, you got yourselves a homicide. And within a minute, George is on the phone and we're rallying troops. 
Wow. So you now know it is definitely a homicide and that Tim is missing. I remember that morning we had a powwow in our briefing area for detectives. These guys had already covered a lot of the initial information gathering type interviews with other people from this work crew the day before. So now it's reaching out to them, reaching out to other people that might have more information. So we got to go a couple layers deeper. And at the same time, Tim is number one on our radar. Are you assuming he's taken Brenda's car now? Are you assuming it's Tim who's in that car? That's what I'm assuming. Yes. Right. So after we talked to more people, we put the bolo out on the car. Bolo? Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Yes. We put a nationwide bolo out for the car saying, anybody comes across this car, give me a call. So this bolo that went out, there's differing levels of interaction we want to have with this suspect. So in some cases, it's stop and detain and wait for us to arrive. In this case, we had a thought that he might be heading home. And where's home for Tim? In another state, thousands of miles away. Oh. Yeah. So we're hoping that we can at least pick up direction of travel to corroborate where we believe he might be going. Yeah, it's uh, really easy now. Our dispatcher types up a message, hits the enter button. Think of it like a group text message, really. Right. And it goes out to all jurisdictions and pops up in their computer that these cops from this place are looking for this person or this car and to be on the lookout for it. And what about the cell phones you found in Brenda's hotel room? So I start rechecking the phones, write search warrants, and we find the last call was made and we find the time in that last call. It was around 7.30 in the morning the morning that Brenda was found. And there was an outgoing call that lasted about 22 minutes. So that was pretty important. Try to figure out who that phone number belonged to. Couldn't tell. So what's the next thing you do? Hit send and see what happens. You call it. We call it. From her phone or from yours? I called it from my phone. Okay. I didn't want to add evidence to this phone. Right. While it can be explained, it's an unnecessary thing. So I call from my desk phone and say, hi, who's this? Person on the other line identified themselves as Tim's mom. She said, yeah, uh, Tim called me in the morning a couple days ago, and he was pretty upset and wanted to talk to stepdad. So I handed the phone to stepdad and let him talk. So I said, well, can I talk to stepdad? He comes on the line and says, uh, Tim was really upset, and he wanted me to pray with him. Tim comes from a part of the country that's a deeply religious part of the country, various denominations, but religion had been a part of his life. Mom and stepdad, still religious people. And stepdad said, yeah, Tim was just really upset. He wanted to get in touch with God. He had some issues. He wanted me to pray with him. But I remember when I was talking to him on the phone, I thought I heard maybe somebody in the background talking. And Tim did, in fact, say during our phone call, hey, Brenda, you need to be quiet. I'm on the phone. Don't talk while I'm on the phone. Oh, my God. So that really helps us to know that at least that time, Brenda's still alive and Tim is with her. So still putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and I'm starting to share this information with Detective Dave, and he's a pretty organized guy. Comes from a different line of work prior to police work, where uh, I think organization is a pretty big deal. So he constructs a little timeline for me. Yes, Dave. I'm looking at it here. I'm actually pretty proud of myself. <laughs> we actually use this timeline much later in this case you know, for demonstrative purposes in a trial to try to document everything from when somebody was last seen to when text messages and phone calls were made. Then I tell stepdad, hey, we're still looking to talk to Tim. You heard from him. And he's like, no, I don't know where he's at. I'm hoping him and Brenda are coming home. It doesn't seem out of the ordinary that police from a different state would be calling about their son. They weren't initially asking. The conversation turned that way to the point where I said, hey, I need to talk to him and Brenda. Something happened out here, and I'm concerned something may have happened to Tim. 
something bad happened to Brenda. When I communicate to somebody, I need to talk to them. They're going to say why. So I tell them, I'm concerned maybe he's a victim of foul play here. It's still entirely possible something bad happened to Tim. What I referred to earlier, maybe he gets beat up, um, brought out somewhere else, left for dead, and the car gets stolen. That's still possible. I don't think it's likely. But I share that with mom and dad. Do mom and dad know Brenda's dead? Do you say that in that call? Not in that call. And did dad say what specifically was troubling Tim? No, there was no kind of confession made. It was along the lines of, I'm emotionally upset right now and I need God in my life and I need to pray because he needs to give me the strength. So I ended the call then and I let them know, hey, if you hear from Tim, give me a call. I really need to talk to him. Meanwhile, this bolo that went out, a license plate reader picks up Tim's car, well, Brenda's car with Tim driving. And we get a notification from that state. They do a traffic stop. And in our BOLO, we just wanted general information. We didn't want any stop. We didn't want any detainment. We just wanted information if you guys come across this car. Can I ask why you didn't want him to be stopped? It wasn't a want to be stopped. It's more of wanting to know his whereabouts. We suspected he was heading back to this specific location where mom and dad lived. In the bolo, does it say he's a suspect in a homicide? No. We would limit information like that because then you have to worry about another agency or jurisdiction taking it upon themselves to start asking questions. And we didn't want to alert Tim that, hey, we know what happened back here. Just the natural reaction for police when they run a plate or see a car and it's a possible suspect in a homicide, that's going to draw two, three, four cops to a traffic stop way too much attention, make Tim extremely nervous about what's going on. We wanted it to be as low-key as possible. Because we don't have probable cause at this point. If we had PC and we knew that he was the murderer, but there are a lot of plausible explanations for what's going on, so we really have to be sure. Right. Right. So yeah, they do the traffic stop in one state. ID the driver and send him on his way. I got a call saying, hey, by the way, we stopped this car, and this guy named Tim's driving. He said he's heading home, which is the next state over. Keep in mind, this is three days after we discover Brenda dead. Okay. Around the 23rd of the month when we find her, and this is the morning of the 26th. A couple hours later, we get a call from the state in which Tim and Brenda are from, from a jurisdiction about an hour, hour and a half away from where Tim's parents live. And that officer says, I stopped this car. By the way, this is what I observed in the car. This is his mannerisms. And just so happens I've got a camera in my car and got a picture of him standing at the back of the car. And here's what he looks like. Here's how he's dressed. And... Lo and behold, it's confirmed that it's Tim. And isn't he in possession of something? He has Brenda's purse in the car. (gasps) No. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe. 
the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. US News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So the trooper asks him about the purse, and Tim says, oh, yeah, it's my girlfriend's purse, just left in the car. So that officer actually seized the purse for us and held on to it, thinking, well, if it's not yours, I'll just hold on to it, and it could be returned to her at a later date and time. Really? Which is a pretty helpful thing. Right. I remember watching that video of the traffic stop, and he just looks nervous, and what the hell is going on? I've been stopped by two cops within an hour and a half of each other. He knows what he's done. Right. And they both let me go. You can see the confusion on him. It was actually remarkable, where he's just kind of looking like, are people messing with me? And they send him on his way, and he makes it safely back to his parents' house. How do you find out that he's at his parents' house? Do they phone you up? Yeah. They called and said he's back here, and I gave them a probably somewhat exaggerated sigh of relief to let them know I'm glad he made it back home. I didn't want to make him nervous. I didn't want to make him think, why is some cop talking to my parents on the phone? Because you didn't want him to take off again or anything like that? No, because at that point, we know where he is. He's in a place where it's safe to him. He's finally made it all this long, long drive back home, 2,000 miles away. So I just let mom know, hey, thanks for letting me know. I'm glad he's okay. We're going to keep on looking into what happened to Brenda. I may reach out to you later. I may have some questions. I may want to talk to Tim at some point, but I want him to relax and get something to eat and get some rest. That's clever. Yeah, that would be disarming. But meanwhile, you must have been hatching some sort of plan because you need to find out what Tim knows. Yeah. To that point, I'm working with Dan on this case. We have a meeting with the bosses, and the boss is like, all right, well, you guys fly out tomorrow morning to head back there. To Tim's parents' house to talk to Tim. That's right. 
And then Detective Dave speaks up and says, well, I'm familiar with this part of the country. I lived there for a couple of years. I know exactly where this place is. I know this area really well. He swooped in like a vulture. He did. <laughs> oh. And he took my case from me. Oh, shit. A little sibling rivalry yeah. there. Yeah. I'm not bitter. <laughs> I'm familiar with the local people and their dialect and their... Um, <laughs> customs. Their customs. <laughs> and their restaurants. Uh, and their beers. Their culture. Uh, <laughs> Tim doesn't live in Afghanistan, Dave. And I... <laughs> For me, I thought it would be an effective way. I know the area. It was helpful, to be completely honest. I know where Tim lives in relation to where we're going to be staying, and it was just an opportunity for me to assist the investigation and be probably the most effective person to make that assist. None of you can see the body language here sitting across from me and Yardley, but Dan's arms are folded. And he's rolling his eyes. And he's rolling his eyes. And then here's just little gloating (laughs) twin brother Dave. I was happy to get out of town. (laughs) This was my first homicide as a detective, so I was was pumped. I want to be a part of this. It was a gut punch, I'd have to guess, because Dan worked really hard on this, and all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from underneath him, and boss said, hey, we're going to send Dave with George. I think the sergeant and the captain recognized that maybe the game was too fast for Dan at that point <laughs> and said, let's send the, the seasoned detective with George. Did you guys have an actual like brotherly spat about it at all? Were you like, hey, bro, that's not cool? No, and he's even like, hey, can you watch my dog while I'm gone? <laughs> wow. Salt in the wound. I didn't care because I was going either way. Yeah. So now Dave and George are on a plane. We're on a plane. Heading to this place I've never been and... Let's see what we can do. We still really at this point don't have probable cause to arrest him. He's obviously the biggest person of interest in this case. So we uh, make our way there and we get in late at night. So the next morning we wake up and the plan is to go out to Tim's mom and dad's place and see if he's there and talk to him. Do you tell them that you're coming? No. Somewhat of a surprise. And weirdly enough, on our way there, we're literally on the highway driving from our hotel to Tim's parents' house when I get a call from our dispatcher saying, hey, the local cops back there are calling because they got a call from Tim's dad. And Tim's dad called the cops and said, Tim wants to turn himself in. But he doesn't know for what. He doesn't tell dad what happened or what he wants to turn himself in for. But I just want to turn myself in. Holy shit. Holy shit. This put a little bit of a wrench in the works. Stepdad being stepdad. And I say, you know, dad, stepdad, I intermix that somewhat. I apologize. But I think stepdad's been in Tim's life for a while. So he gets referred to as both. And he cares about Tim. Been a big part of his life. So what do parents do who care about their kids? They start wondering, does my kid need an attorney? Maybe I shouldn't let Tim talk to the cops. (gasps) So we drive really fast out to the house. We get there, pull up in the driveway, and stepdad walks out of the house and meets with me out front. And I introduce myself and Detective Dave. And I say, hey, I understand you called the police and Tim wants to turn himself in. What can I do for you? And stepdad's really like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what he's done or hasn't done, but do you think he needs an attorney? Uh. And those questions are tough for cops to answer in a certain sense. I tell him, I'm not in any position to give you legal advice. I cannot tell you whether or not he needs an attorney. It's totally up to you. Do you think I can talk to Tim and say hi to him? He's like, well, Tim's in the house. I'll ask him if he wants to come out and talk to you, but I don't think he wants to talk right now. So, all right, well, let me know. We wait out front for probably a minute. Seemed like an hour. (laughs) And out emerges stepdad and Tim. And Tim's, I don't know, he comes across as a meek, frail, skinny um, kid. Not a kid. He's in his 20s. He looks defeated. He just trudges out to the front of the house in this defeated manner. I extend my hand to him. I say, I just want to shake your hand, introduce myself. My name's George, and uh, I was hoping to talk to you about some stuff. Don't know if you want to talk right now. Sounds like you may not want to. 
do you want to? He just kind of mumbles and doesn't really say much. I said, well, listen, give me a call. If you change your mind, if you want to talk, I'd like to talk to you about what happened out where we live. Let me know. So Tim trudges back into the house. I talked to stepdad for a minute. I'm remembering that we had one of their county deputies out there with us just in case, you know, we're dealing with what we now believe is our murder suspect, but we need to corroborate some details and basically get us over the hump of probable cause here. And this deputy that's with us, he sees this interaction and I'm sure he's thinking, oh, this is a murder suspect and they're going to be putting hooks on him and throwing him in my car and then we're on our way to the jail. And like George said, he looks defeated. He looks beat down like he's been wearing this stress for the last several days. And George and I shake his hand and basically wrap up the conversation. Hey, why don't you give us a call if and when you're ready to talk? And we go to leave. And I remember looking at this deputy and he has this look of, what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> it was a total strategy move at that point. And I mean, we have a plane ride and a car ride for Dave and I to talk about this, about what do we do if, what do we do if. And I think we came up with the idea of let's not push him right now because time's kind of on our side a little bit. Still, we know where he is. We know where he feels safe. He's going to be at this house. And if I start pushing too much right after stepdad's saying things like, I don't know, maybe he needs a lawyer. I could see him lawyering up on us and saying, I don't want to talk to you, I want a lawyer. At that point, we're in a real pickle because we don't have probable cause to arrest him, but I, I need some more information. One of the important details of that interaction right at the end with the dad is he lets us know that when Tim got home, he had a heart-to-heart with his mother. And his mother is not at the house at that time. She's at work. And he doesn't tell us you might want to talk to her, but obviously we're thinking that conversation with his mom was the mea culpa. This is what I did. We casually asked stepdad, hey, um, by the way, where, where, where's mom at? Oh, she's at work. Oh, she works. Where's she at? And just to get to the point where we know where she is. We don't tell him, hey, by the way, we're going to talk to her. Right. right. So we're thinking time is of the essence now that right when we leave, they're probably calling mom saying cops from the other side of the country are here that we've been talking to on the phone and... The deputy basically gives us a police escort to the next town. So we're flying. We get to her place of employment and finally get her outside and speak to her. Where did the mom work? She worked at a convalescent home, a nursing home. So I'm almost running up down the hall trying to find this woman. And as I'm doing that, I think Detective Dave's in another part of the building. And she steps outside for a smoke break and runs right into him. Uh. So I hustle over to the other side of the building and step outside, introduce myself and say, hey, want to talk. What a moment that must have been for her. She's giving up her son. Yeah. So we sit outside. I bring the recorder with me. I set it out and I let her know, hey, I want to record our conversation. And she sees that and says, uh, no, I want to talk to you. That's fine. I don't want it recorded because I think she's coming from the mom perspective of, I think she's afraid of having her words memorialized in that way when she's about to share something with me that her son told her, and this is going to be some bad stuff. It's one thing to tell me. It's another thing to hear her voice. Do you know if she had already received a call from the husband saying these guys are headed your way? I don't think she did. No. I think we did it right when we left as if, well, maybe we'll stop by and talk later type thing. And we drove down the driveway slowly. But once we got out of sight, then we booked it out (laughs) over to convalescent home. I don't think she got a call. So then we started talking to her and said, I understand Tim talked to you when he got back. And I was curious, you know, if he shared anything that can help us figure out what went on. She was really upset. She did mention that uh, Tim and Brenda had been in a relationship. They traveled out our way. Things were up and down. But in this particular day, going back to the 23rd, Tim had told her that Brenda had had sex. And at some point during or after the sex, an argument ensued because Tim looked at Brenda and saw a a demon face. That's how he described it to mom. Oh. 
Brenda asked Tim, what's wrong? She saw the look on his face and he said something to her. And then Tim told his mom that he choked Brenda. And she actually demonstrated what Tim described to her by raising her hands, putting her hands around, not my neck, but generally my area of where my neck was and squeezing and shaking at the same time, demonstrating what Tim showed her that he did. Tim told her that he did this until Brenda stopped breathing and then dropped her to the floor. Then he did some praying. And this all took place after the phone call that was made to his mom and stepdad. Wow. So that phone call happened after Tim looked at Brenda's face and saw a demon. He needed to pray with his stepdad and get help to get his head right, got off the phone, his head wasn't right, and then he decided to kill her. I think that's fairly accurate. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I talked to mom some more and said, you know, is anybody else around when this conversation was going on? She goes, well, yeah, my other son, he's in college somewhere else, but he was home this day a couple days ago. It was a holiday weekend, actually. But he's back at college now, and you want to give him a call, and maybe he can tell you what he remembers. One witness is great, the more the merrier. Some witnesses hear things, perceive things differently, add additional details. So at this point, mom's statement is great. Based on what mom's telling us, now we have probable cause to arrest him. But we want more information. So I call the brother up and talk to him on the phone. He's two hours away from where we're at. Uh, where he lives, probably 90 minutes, yeah. Okay. You drive faster than I do. I do. And I know where I'm going, which is why I was on this trip, Dan. <laughs> Dan remains completely unimpressed. Poor Dan. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, Dan. I really am. I have nothing to say to you people. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, I called the brother up and said, hey, just talk to your mom. She said you guys had a conversation with Tim when he got back. What was that conversation about? And he corroborates almost exactly what mom said. Same conversation. And he said, well, really, have you talked to my brother? And I'm like, well, you know, I went out there, but... You know, the brother didn't really want to talk to me right now, and stepdad's with him, and I'm not so sure if he wants to talk to me. He goes, well, all right, I'll uh, I'll see. You know, I'll, I may call out to the house, check on Tim, and see how he's doing, and check on dad. So then we make our way back to the hotel to game plan what we're going to do from here. We had breakfast. I had to go to the bathroom, so I ducked into the hotel real quick to use the bathroom. And I set my phone down, and I tell Dave, hey, my luck is I'm going to get a call from somebody, some important call, but I got to go. And I'm going, and all of a sudden, my phone rings. <laughs> of course. And I'm like, George, your phone's ringing. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> so I step out from the lavatory, answer the phone, and it's Tim's brother. And it says, hey, I just talked to Tim. And he said he wants you guys to come out to the house. He wants to talk to you and tell you what happened. At that point, we rushed back out as quick as we could. It's probably another 15-minute drive. Dave calls the local sheriff's department and says, hey, uh, I know we brought you out here earlier, but can you send another deputy out? This time, we, we need your help. We're probably going to be uh, hooking this guy up for murder. So we get out to the driveway, and the family meets us kind of in a similar fashion as before. But this time, Tim is sitting on the porch, and it's a big front porch area and kind of in a rural area. So... We've got the woods around us, kind of peaceful, actually. And this deputy rolls up in his car. He gets out of the car. and He's gigantic. He's enormous. I look at him, and I walk up to him, and I see his name tag. And I was like, that guy played football while I was playing baseball. In this part of the country? Yeah, it's the same school that I went to. Ah, uh, what? What? I was like, hey, small world. And he recognizes me, too. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. 
weren't you I spent a lot of time in the training room. I had some shoulder issues. So he and I recognized each other from getting treatment before and after practices. And he said, what are you doing out here? And I kind of give him a Cliff's Notes version of what we're dealing with. Okay. Yeah, you just let me know. And so he kind of hung back while George interviewed Tim in front of his family. In front of his whole family. Wow. How did that interview go? They just have a conversation on the front porch. It was really weird. The formal part of it I had to get out of the way. It was the Miranda warning. And that was the hardest part of this whole interview is how do I do this informally to where it doesn't freak him out. So as we're just sitting there talking, I casually give him the Miranda warning and he acknowledges he understands. And there's a couple of porch swings on the porch and a couple of folding chairs. He sits down in one. I sit down on the porch swing across from each other and we sit there and talk. Did you record that interview? I did. I brought the recorder out and set it out on a little table right in front of us. And to say, I just want to record this interview, and he looks at it, okay, that's fine. Is he required to let you record it if you read his Miranda rights to him? Miranda has nothing to do with the audio recording. So if he says, I don't want this recorded, then I'm going to turn it off. I see. So turned it on, and I said, You want to sit there? Sure. All right. So, um, I wanted to talk to you about what's going on. Um, I understand... You're okay with talking to me, so I'm hoping we can uh, we can do that and uh, tell me about what happened. <laughs> and I didn't directly accuse him of anything initially. He said, well, I talked to you about what happened to Brenda, and he acknowledges the trip out there. He acknowledges uh, they had a little argument the night before at the hotel room, and he returned to the room while Brenda went out with her friends, and she came back in the early morning hours. Um, he says... But it was hard to make him love. And then, I don't know, I was making love. It was like her face had changed like it was evil. And it felt like as if somebody had reached inside my leg and touched my hip and made it pop out of place. And uh, and I told her to stop what we were doing. And, like I was trying to explain to her what, what, what was happening. And I said, well, it feels like my leg, my hip. You know, I couldn't get the words in my mouth. And then she had stopped me and said, it's dislocated. I was like, how do you know that? And she wouldn't tell me how she knew. And then I just had this feeling that was overwhelming me. And then I felt like I was dying. I couldn't breathe or anything. So I told her to get away from me. And like the further distance was between us, the better I felt. Anyway, I was really starting to get scared. Like I felt like she was there to kill me. I called my stepdad, you know, and I was, Prayed over the phone with him and whatnot. And then, like, I told her that, you know, that I was a child of God and that I didn't fear her. And I sat down on the bed, and she had done stood up by then. And I told her she'd sit down, and she didn't have to be afraid of me. And I was trying to talk to her about being saved and whatnot. And she was trying to tell me that she was saved and she had been baptized. But then that face came back on her again. Well, I told her to quit doing that, and she was like, what? I said, putting that witchcraft on me. And she said, like, in a sarcastic way, like, I don't know nothing about witchcraft. And the whole time she had that, that face. And then I had came upon her and told her to stop, you know. And then every time she would look at me in my eyes, you know, like I got this evil presence over me, and I told her that I would hit her. And eventually I did. And then somehow, I don't know, we started fighting, and then I got up, 
and then we started choking each other. And then every time that I would call out to God to give me the strength, kill her. Just, she got weaker and I got stronger. But every time like I would doubt myself that God did, wasn't there for me, she would overcome me. But anyway, I killed her. Okay? And it just felt like y'all know it was like the right thing to do. How do you feel about it now? I don't like it at all. I don't think it was the right thing to do. Why not? It took a life. Do you see it any differently now than you did then? I mean, looking back on it now, what do you think happened? I think I was supposed to have been there to cast the demon out and not to kill her. Not to kill her, but to cast the demon out? Yes. But I don't understand why God didn't make me feel that way. And like every time that I would call upon God to help, you know, to choke her, Every time like, my strength would fill me, that I would call it to God, my strength would come back. We talked a little bit about how this happened. This took place nearby the front door, and he was able to put his hands around her neck and show me how he kind of interlaced his fingers and squeezed. And he did so until she stopped breathing. Where'd you go when you left? Did you leave town right away? Did you go get some gas and food? Did you hit the highway? Yeah, actually, I drove around for a little while because I, I didn't know what to think, really. And I just... Yeah. I actually kind of got lost and turned around. Eventually, I found my way back. Did you stop anywhere while you were in? I did. I stopped at some gas station, got something to eat. Do you remember where that gas station was? Not really. Okay. Is it a place you've been to before? No. Okay. What'd you get to eat? Do you remember? I got, I don't really think I got something to eat. I think I got some water. Okay. I know these sound like silly questions. At this point of the case, we've investigated a lot. We've looked into a lot of things, talked to witnesses, video surveillance, all that good stuff. It's important when I talk to you, I know that I'm getting a lot of the truth from you. And when I ask you questions, a lot of it's to corroborate information we already know or to fill in blanks that we don't know. Um, I'm not here to make a fool of you. I'm not here to judge you. It's not anything like that at all. Did you use uh, any kind of drugs at all while you're up in Yes. What kind of drugs did you use? Weed. Weed? Did you use any cocaine or methamphetamine? Yes, it was up there. Okay. We found some in the room, obviously, and I'm not going to jump to conclusions about who was using it. Um, prior to this incident happening, when's the last time you used any of the drugs, and what did you use? It was like the day before or something. day before. What was that? It was meth. Meth, okay. How were you using it? Snorted. Snorted, okay. We didn't find any needles or spoons, which is a pretty common method of people use. Um, was there cocaine there? Did you use any of the cocaine, or was that meth also? It was just meth and weed. Okay. It was a different powder form, so we're sending that out to the lab to just see. There's so many different kinds of meth. People use it different ways. So if you're snorting it, that makes sense. Do you think drug use at all triggered anything? No, not in at all, because I mean, what I felt was real. I mean, I, oh, was, I, know that. I, I was brought up a Christian, and like I swear, like it was evil. Have you ever done anything like this before? No. And that's why I ask. Sometimes there's an underlying reason as to why you're thinking and behaving a certain way, but sometimes using drugs elevates that level more. Well, you, you know, you're a child of God. You're a Christian. You have your beliefs. Sometimes under the influence of drugs, it brings out that in you some more, some more of your belief, and may cause you to act on that. So I didn't know if you thought that would influence that. I don't believe it was that at all. Okay. Did he say why 
he called his dad before he fully killed her? Because he was having emotional issues and he fell back to his roots of religion and wanted to get some guidance about what to do. He was having bad feelings in his brain. Things weren't going well. He thought people were plotting against him. Plotting against him? Yeah. Pretty common manifestation of people who are using meth. Oh. Paranoia. Paranoia. Yep. So uh, he said once he got off the phone with stepdad, he realized he needed to pray to God and deal with the problems in his life. And one of those problems at that time was Brenda. So he made no mistake about it. He's the one that did this. No one else is in the room. What he demonstrated was something typically only the suspect would know. We didn't release information to the public about how this person was killed. So what he's describing, as well as describing the scene to include where her body was found, only the person that was there should know this. Makes us feel better about arresting the right guy. Just wondering what your frame of mind is as you're driving. How are you feeling in those first few hours after all this has happened? Eventually I started crying. It was like every time I turned on the radio, it felt like they were talking about me. Like every song was about me. Every talk show was talking about me. What do you mean? I mean, it's hard to explain the subject matter that they were talking about. Yeah, it's like as if like they knew my whole entire life or something. Like I knew what was going on. Were you thinking that this was just the most dramatic confession as he's describing these demonic influences? I know. It, it, you can't help but, like, roll your eyes at some of this thinking, why is he telling me this stuff? It, it, this was extremely important and relevant to him, so I just let him go. This is really a narrative in his point. This is me listening, not asking questions. It wasn't a typical interview interrogation setting. A lot of times you start with an interview, then you go into your interrogation of somebody. This was... Tell me what happened. And I sit there and listen. You were on a porch swing right. in a home out in a rural setting that was rather peaceful. Dave was over there with one of his buddies from sports days. I mean, that couldn't be a more small town murder confession if you tried to paint a picture. I think if we had a background picture for this podcast, it would be some kind of Norman Rockwell picture of this happening. You distinguish between an interview and an interrogation. I do. Interview to me is the initial part of the conversation with the suspect where you're gathering information. You're asking questions, and the person you're talking to is giving the responses. And you're taking notes of what they're saying. You're picking up on their verbal or nonverbal cues. They're uh, picking up on the physiological manifestations of their behavior, whether they're nervous, whether they're lying. You're looking for tells. And just getting to know them, you're laying the groundwork for what's going to happen next when you actually accuse somebody. That's the interrogation part. The interview part, they do all the talking. We do the questions, they answer. The interrogation part, I'm doing the talking, I'm directing the conversation to where I want it to go, and they give the responses. And if I'm not getting the response I need, I redirect and get them into that. This was not formal. It was nothing like that at all. Fascinating. So what's the protocol after receiving a confession like that? Once the confession was done, we corroborated some other details looked over at Dave and said, hey, could you ask your friend if he can transport Tim back to the county jail? This was a little bit of a new thing for me, arresting somebody on probable cause in a different state out of our jurisdiction. We didn't have a warrant for his arrest. And these folks at this sheriff's office could not have been more polite and cooperative and helpful to us. The deputy is like, yeah, load him up. Let's go back there. And I'm used to running into problems with other departments sometimes. And we say, hey, we want you to arrest this guy because at this point, I don't have powers to arrest in this state. Oh, I am not a police officer in this state. So I have to ask this deputy, could you arrest this man for murder? And this deputy has to believe me. 
Right. He has to think, well, I guess this guy knows what he's talking about, and he can arrest him based on my probable cause if he believes I have probable cause. But I'm just some schmo who showed up out of nowhere the day before. Are you even wearing your uniforms from your state? No. No, no you're plain no. clothes. Just plain clothes. I just pictured you in uniforms this whole time. People don't react well to uniforms when you're talking to them about some intense stuff like this. People are more comfortable in a casual setting when you're able to sit there and just BS with them in a T-shirt and jeans. So the deputy from Tim's state has to actually arrest him because you two aren't sworn police officers there. But I'm assuming you intend to take him back to your own state where he'll be indicted for murder, right? So how do you go about that? So during this day, George had multiple conversations with the district attorney on this. And once we had talked to mom, we relayed information to him. Hey, we've got probable cause now. Can you start working on getting the arrest warrant? The DA in your state. Correct. So we're not relying upon just us verbally telling another sheriff's deputy, hey, we've got probable cause to arrest this guy. We've also got the nationwide extradition with the warrant. We've got all the official paperwork to take him into custody and get him off the streets. Which is why it's even more generous of them to just cooperate and go with it. They're very accommodating. I think there are certain jurisdictions that could look at you and say, I, I don't know if we're comfortable doing this. And I wouldn't blame them necessarily. They would do the call us when you've got an arrest warrant. Yeah. And in good faith, these people with this sheriff's office bent over backwards to help us. And that's the way law enforcement should work together. It doesn't always happen like that. So you've got this strong case. Now it's clear you've got a confession on tape. You've got all this corroborating evidence. Does he at some point have to travel back with you guys to your state to be tried? Yes. But first of all, we had to ask him if he'd be extradited back and he waived the hearing he was fine with coming back wait i didn't know you could say no i'm not giving you the right to extradite me i deserve a hearing about that absolutely even though you're being arrested for murder correct that he can go before a judge and say i don't think it's right that i get extradited back and i don't think they have probable cause to arrest me and a judge will have a hearing and review our paperwork and hear from him it's not oftentimes judges will do that will say you know you don't get to extradite him but sometimes those occasions are there and sometimes they're really skinny cases or there's problems and a judge may say no you don't get to extradite him back this was not an issue he waived it he said i'll come back with you wow okay uh, okay we arrested him on a saturday so we had to wait till court's back in session which is a Monday. Okay, hang on. I just have a quick question. If Tim has waived his right to extradition and he's willing to go with you, why do you have to wait until Monday for a court to be in session? Why don't you just take him? Well, if the two case hijackers don't mind, I'll chime in. <laughs> Basically, that kind of thing has to be on the record. So since judges don't work on weekends, we have to wait to the weekday to get that put on the record. Right, right. okay. And... That hearing took place that afternoon, so I think our flight home was on that Tuesday or Wednesday. We got a few days in this town. We've done a lot of our work, but now we're just kind of hanging out. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed your vacation, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time extraditing a prisoner cross country. So we had to jump through this little bit of hoops how to do this at the airport. We're wearing our guns and badges but we're in plain clothes. So we have to cover up as best as possible. But the airport doesn't like cops displaying guns on planes. So, okay, we cover that up. They really don't like people wearing handcuffs and shackles <laughs> on planes because it makes people nervous. Sure. Pretty reasonable. So they make accommodations for you. And I have to say, this is Dave's idea, but um, we have to keep this guy in some kind of belly chain and handcuffs. It's not safe to have him freely moving around on a plane. I'd done an extradition from a state near there prior to this. So 
I had a little bit of practice and I knew that if you take a hoodie and you just cut out a little hole, so they're wearing this belly chain. And if you cut a little hole inside this hoodie into where your hands go inside the little pouch in front, that you can feed this D-ring from the belly chain into the area where his hands would be, and you can have him handcuffed there with his hands hidden. What if he has to pee? (laughs) We'll get to that. Okay, thank you. So we arrive at the airport with Tim. He's in cuffs. We've got him as disguised as we can. George and I are both dressed business casual, and Tim is dressed like he's going out for a jog. So it's a little (laughs) bit of an odd couple with this plus one. And there's a big line for this airline, and next to us is kind of the express lane. And I'm thinking, we don't want to have murder suspects sitting in this line with all these regular patrons of this airline. So I go to the express lane, and the airline knows that we're coming because there's all this behind-the-scenes paperwork that gives them an alert. You're going to have two law enforcement officers armed and a prisoner on this plane. And airlines are used to this. They've dealt with this before. So we go to this express lane, and this guy immediately, who's been standing in line probably for quite a while, voices his displeasure with us, cutting the line basically. And we had been told by the airline, just go to the express lane. So this guy is getting louder and louder. And I think there was one person in front of us. We get up to the front of the line and he goes, oh, you're going to have to wait like the rest of us. We've been here all morning. And he says, I'm pretty sure what you guys are dealing with isn't as important as the stuff that the rest of us are dealing with. And I kind (laughs) of chuckle because I'm like looking at the guy. Well, you want to meet my murderer friend here? Uh, And George says, well, we actually do have something fairly important. And I seize the opportunity. I just step up to the open kiosk where this person is. And I put my badge on the counter. And he nods at me like, okay, so you're the two cops and that's the suspect. And I think this guy sees the badge and he goes, "Um, never mind what I said, guys. I'm sorry about that. Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) People are always, they could be rude or hurried at the airport. I, I get how people are like that. Oh, traveling's the worst. I mean, I kind of get it. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I looked at the airline employee. I said, my guess was you didn't want your regular patrons socializing with a murderer who's getting extradited. And he said, you made a fair assumption. That was good. <laughs> you came to the right line. And they were very accommodating, slipped us in through the normal areas that you have to go through the security checkpoints. We kind of went the back route through the back halls and pop out on the other side, right in front of the gate. Nice and easy. So when we picked up Tim that morning, we noticed he had a little bit of a cold, a little bit of a sore throat. So I think we bought him some cough drops and something to drink, a juice to drink, when we got him the sweatshirt. So we're at the airport, and Tim's starting to cough more and more, getting a little bit more uh, congested. We get on the plane. We get to board first on the plane. That way we're settled, and then all the other passengers don't see us. But we're also the last ones off the plane for the same reason. And they put you at the very back of the plane, And I think that back seat were the walls at your back, so you don't recline or anything like that, which is fine. So we change planes, and at our first point of changing planes, Tim's hungry, Tim's not feeling so good, Tim has to use the bathroom. So I think I went and got him some Burger King at the airport, got him a bag of food to eat, and he's not feeling so good. Oh, no. This is the short flight had been done first. Right. So it was like an hour and a half flight, the first leg, and then the big leg's coming up at this airport. And I take... Tim to the bathroom at least twice while we're there. 
and he just has to go number one. So what I do is I uncuff his dominant hand. I think he was a lefty. I'm not going to be the guy who's accommodating this urination. So <laughs> I just unhandcuff one hand and let him step up to the urinal, and I'm just standing back there. And I'm sure anybody walking through is like, why is this guy just staring at this dude? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Taking a pee. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, worst case scenario, he takes off or this turns into a fight in the bathroom and I've got to fight and get him back into a handcuff that's, you know, he's got one hand free and the other cuff is applied. So I'm thinking worst case scenario, please don't mess with me, man. And he was really easy to deal with, but you never know if somebody's lulling you into a sense of comfort. So we go to the bathroom a couple of times and then it's time to board our flight and we get on the plane first go to the back row and george and i'll never forget this and he denies this to this day he goes dave i'm gonna pull rank right here well they gave us seats on two different sides of the aisle there's two seats on one side of the aisle and one across the aisle so i'm thinking george this is your custody this is your case you should probably sit next to him in case he makes any additional statements and george says i'm gonna pull rank here dave he's pretty sick i think you need to sit next to him we got a five-hour flight coming up, and I look at George with this, you son of a bitch. That's not how the conversation went. First time I've seen your brother smile this whole case, by the way. <laughs> it's because George and I had been in contact throughout this trip, and <laughs> he informed me that Tim had gotten sick, and we plotted against you, Dave. So it's all part of the conspiracy. <laughs> so yeah, Dave got to sit next to this guy who initially had sore throat and sniffles. By the end of the five-hour flight, he was coughing so much he was spitting into a cup. <gasps> no. Um, and the cup was <laughs> at least half full. Oh, no. my God. Bloody nose. No. I mean, this guy what? was a mess. He was a mess. And he didn't have his hands to use? No. So were you, like, holding out a hanky for him or what? Were you holding the cup? I gave him one hand free. <gasps> we were sitting on the right side of the plane, so I took his right hand cuff off. He'd have to reach across himself to attack me. So I had one cuff attached to this D-ring and... We sat there. Thankfully, you didn't have to use the toilet while we were on this flight. Ugh. The airline, can't say enough about them. Very accommodating. They gave us free access to the Wi-Fi. So how was Tim during this travel saga? He was super cooperative. Even though he was sick as a dog, he didn't cause us any problems on the flights back. But when we landed from the five-hour flight to the next airport, we're in uh, terminal. And then I think at that point, Tim had to use the bathroom and go number two. Oh. oh. So I used this moment to tell Dave, I'll handle this. We went into this big public bathroom at this airport, and I found the handicap stall because it has the most room. I went in the stall with him. You have to go into the stall with him? I think it was like a rule, but I felt like, what if I just stood outside the stall and he did something to either harm himself, not necessarily him escaping or hurting somebody else, but we're in the last stall. It's that big handicap one, so what if he tried to do something to hurt himself? I'm still responsible for him. So I... And did his handcuffs and let him sit down there at the toilet and use the lavatory. That was a long 10 minutes in the bathroom or so. And 10 minutes? Is there any small talk while this is going on or no. are you just both quiet? No, just awkward looks back and forth, <laughs> nodding the head. So you have to keep an eye on him? You can't even turn your back? I, when, I was turned at an angle. I didn't watch him the whole time, uh -huh. like face on. Just out of the corner of your eye. Turned to my side and kind of looked out of the corner of my eye at him as if uh, just in case. But he was fine. Nothing happened. We came out later, and as I walked out 10 minutes later, Dave's got a big smile on his face. He was happy. At least I had to do something uncomfortable during this trip. Well, it's also, there's an inherent discomfort with sitting next to a murderer. 
Sure. On a flight, you know. You could say you're scared, Dave. It's okay. (laughs) I mean, it is fascinating to hear about these little detailed aspects of your work. And though it's ultimately a very serious and devastating case, as a layperson listening, I can really appreciate the levity found in moments as in this little or not so little excursion home, (laughs) to be honest. And I think if you want to survive this job, you look back at those parts of your case as the things you want to remember. Yeah, that makes sense. You need something to offset the dark shit you guys see. Speaking of the dark shit, remember James, Brenda's nephew? Yes, what became of him? So he goes back to his state after the job is done here, and apparently he just never fully got over what happened between Tim and Brenda. James was a really good witness for us. He put them together, that there was some strife going on between Tim and Brenda, and James never fully got over what happened to his aunt, And one day, James goes and puts his head on the railroad tracks and lets a train run over his head. You're kidding. Yeah, and he was definitely going to be called to testify in our trial. So he did that before testimony? Yeah. Yeah. And we got word of it. Maybe a couple months before the trial? Yeah. And we're like, you got to be kidding me. Oh, my God. That's devastating. Wow. One thing that I'm recalling about this trip to Tim's state is that we went and spoke with Brenda's family also while we were there to have that face-to-face contact with him. And they had taken a picture of Brenda during her military service to kind of show us the before, before she had gotten into this part of her life with Tim and sometimes using drugs. And she's in uniform. So there's some reverence for the service that Brenda provided to our country. And everybody that spoke about her talked about her big heart and what a great person she was, and what a strong and independent woman she was. And those were notable things, and those are the types of things that keep you with your eye on the prize, which is, I want to convict the guy that took her off the planet. I see. Dave, I just want to go back for a second and ask you about the awareness you had about sitting next to a murderer on this airplane. Because if he's not physically threatening, and he's being quite compliant, and he's confessed, what is that awareness or that uneasiness about for you? Well, you know what he's capable of. Mm, That's true. And the other issue is, and people in law enforcement will probably nod their heads when they hear this, is there's plenty of times where I've dealt with somebody who's feigning compliance and faking it and trying to lull me into a little bit of complacency. And when you're complacent, that's when bad things happen. So I'm on guard the whole time. Sure, I'm being respectful, and I'm laid back even when I'm in a room with a sex offender. I'm as laid back as can be, but I'm also aware that at any point this interaction can turn. And so that's why we don't take anything for granted and that I'm on edge. On a flight like that, usually I try to lean back and try to get some sleep. The whole time I am aware that this guy might cause problems for me or the passenger in front of him, try to turn this into a situation. So it's unsettling in that degree. And just to think what this guy's capable of, you know, when no one's looking, what did he do? He viciously murdered this woman. So that's kind of a two-part answer. Sure, because I think one of the strange draws to true crime stories in general is this, like, fascination with that unknown component about a human being who's willing to take another life. I mean, that's something that none of us sitting here at this table can really, like, 
understand, and yet we try to because it happens all the time. That's a big deal for us on the law enforcement side to hammer home to the layperson that just because it looks like someone's chill and relaxed and doing everything that you're telling them to do, they're compliant, that it's not always the case. And that law enforcement deals with these nonverbal cues and body language and certain furtive movements that alert us that, hey, something's coming. I was waiting for the other shooter drop the whole time, honestly. Really? I thought at some point he's going to try to escape. He's going to do something. Desperation's going to kick in. The reality of what he did is going to kick in. And it never happened. But the whole time I'm thinking, okay, if he does this, what am I going to do? What's Dave going to do? I don't think we necessarily planned it out and talked about it. We just said, hey, if something happens, we got to just keep him restrained and hold him down if need be until something happens. I thought the long flight would be his opportunity to act out and do something. Never happened. It was a big sense of relief. We made it back here and there wasn't any issues. We booked him into the jail and I was surprised there wasn't some kind of acting out. So glad I asked that question. How did Tim's prosecution go down? He was evaluated by psychologists, both from the state and from the defense. Uh, neither psychologist found that he was unfit for trial, that he suffered from something that would prohibit him from formulating the intent. So that was ruled out. They said, you're responsible for what you did. Well, then the defense kind of leaned towards, well, he had some underlying issues, of religious background where he relied on God and praying, and uh, he had behavior issues, but he also used drugs, and the drugs made him do it. That's what he said. Yes. Him and his defense wanted to say that uh, essentially he's not responsible for what happened because he did it under the influence of meth. So then it became a question of is this some kind of meth psychosis issue to where he acted outside of knowing what he was doing. And that wasn't the case because he remembered all the details. He remembered details of everything that happened, where he was standing, how things went. So then they still tried to push the, well, let's blame meth. And our prosecutor did a really good job not only just researching case law, but contacting our local psychiatric security review board and asking them questions about, you know, if he was to be found not guilty except for insane, what would happen? And typically the state's position is if you're found insane, you get sent to the mental hospital. But once your reason for your insanity is cured, then you're released. They said, well, in this instance, if he's going to blame drugs, what would happen is if he were to be able to be found as not responsible for this and blame the drugs, once he got brought into our facility, we'd have to release him right away because he's not under the influence of drugs. So the prosecution made an argument that basically said, you can't blame the drugs because you voluntarily took these drugs. It's a voluntary intoxication. It's not like somebody shot him up with something or somebody slipped something in his drink, and that's what caused him to do this. If that's the case, that'd be a lot different. You're not responsible for your actions as much if somebody were to load you up full of drugs. In this case, he voluntarily took drugs knowing what happens when he takes drugs. He's been a drug addict for years since he was a teenager. He'd been taking methamphetamine and marijuana both. So he's aware of the consequences. Right. What was the verdict? He was found guilty in trial. Of first-degree murder? Yes. And what did he get? Life in prison. The way our state runs it is life in prison with the earliest possible release being 25 years. So he'll be reevaluated at the 25-year mark and seeing, are you eligible to be released type thing. But it's technically called a life sentence. That's a long time. Yep. Wow. Thank you, George. Sergeant George. <laughs> Sarge. I'm used to hearing that still. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith and co-produced by detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bation, Yardley Smith, and Zibby Allen. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. Our associate producer is Erin Gaynor, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. 
If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, head on over to smalltowndicks.com and become our pal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from our small town fam, so hit us up. Yeah, and also we have a YouTube channel where you can see trailers for past and forthcoming episodes. And we're part of Stitcher Premium now. That's right. If you choose to subscribe, you'll be supporting our podcast. That way, we can keep going to small towns across the country and bringing you the finest in rare true crime cases, told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. Thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you. <laughs>